forgive you. Alrighty, so this morning we'll be in Genesis, so you can turn there again, uh, just like last week. Last week, if you remember, uh, we looked at Noah and the flood, um, and specifically how Noah acted as a type of second Adam in his faith and obedience, pointing us to Christ, the true last Adam, and how he saves us from judgment, um, atones for our sins as the ultimate sacrifice, and bears the curse of God, um, and in turn we receive his favor and blessing. This week, we'll look at the nature and benefits of this covenant uh, that God makes with Noah, his sons, and the rest of his creatures. It's an often overlooked covenant in Scripture, which is ironic because we benefit from it every day. Um, I say that as one who has often overlooked it myself, I'm not really understanding fully the, the significance of it, not just day to day, but in the redemptive plan that God has ordained um, and carried out through Christ. So as a refresher, we should probably review what a covenant is. Uh, a covenant is essentially a relationship between two or more parties bound by some sort of oath or promise or condition. Those in that covenant agree to certain terms and agree to uphold those conditions set forth in it. One thing to note with biblical covenants is that it is always God who makes the covenant and sets the terms in it. It isn't as if man comes to the table with God and they both lay out their opinions of what should be included in this covenant and who will be required to do what. No, it's, it's God who alone establishes the relationship and what the nature of the covenant is. And most importantly, what it is that he promises to do. As we've noted many times, God makes promises and he never breaks them. He is always faithful, even when we are not. And in this particular covenant that he makes with Noah, we see that it is entirely one-sided. So the Noahic covenant isn't dependent on man in any way, but on God and his promise. So let's jump into Genesis 9 here uh, real quick. And actually, we might as well start with 820 since it kind of flows together in the chapter division is a little strange, but um, we can say that because it's not divinely inspired, the, the chapter division. So <clears throat> verse 20 of chapter 8, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. 
Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I, will, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So we'll take this sermon in three points uh, again this morning. And the first, we'll look at common grace specifically, uh, what it is. Second, we'll look at the benefits of this covenant that God makes with Noah. And lastly, we'll look at the covenant sign. In each of these points, the focus or spotlight, I, I hope, will be on the Lord and his grace towards unworthy creatures without distinction. And that such an understanding would help us marvel all the more at the special favor that God bestows upon those in Christ. So the first point, uh, common grace or the common grace covenant. Um, some of you, I imagine, are familiar with the term common grace, or you've heard it said, or you sort of have an idea of what it means, but maybe you're not quite sure where it comes from in Scripture. As with several biblical concepts, the words common and grace aren't used together like that in the Bible, but the principle is seen throughout. And that principle is this. God is kind to the undeserving and sets his unmerited favor upon all people, both saved and unsaved. It is a favor that is common to all, and all who draw breath are recipients of it in some measure. We read in Psalm 145, verse 9, that the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Psalm 104 itself, if you read through it, is essentially a common grace psalm packed with displays of God's common grace towards his creation. We could name several other uh, verses that convey the same marvelous truth that God is good 
to all, especially the undeserving, because all stand before him undeserving. Now, the term itself, common grace, is used in part to distinguish between it and God's special, or what we call his saving grace, towards his children. It's true that both of these, God's common grace and his saving grace, or special grace, flow in a single channel, if you will, because they come from God alone. But the truth remains that although God is gracious to all commonly, he is still only gracious to some savingly. Jesus says in the Gospels that God makes the sun rise on the evil as well as the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. That is what we would call common grace. And think of how amazing that is for just a moment, that even the wicked and unregenerate are allowed to draw breath. They're they're given families and friends, and they can enjoy a sunrise or delicious food. But the difference is only God's children, those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus benefit not only from the rains that water the earth, but also from the showers of gospel grace that fall upon us at every moment, refreshing our weary hearts and thirsty souls. Only those in Christ can benefit from the warmth and light and beauty from the rising sun, but also the sun of righteousness, the Lord Jesus, who is the light of the world and delivers us from darkness warming us with heavenly joy and peace, giving us life and growth and grace by his spirit. Such spiritual benefits of saving grace, the unbeliever cannot know or enjoy. And yet the astounding truth is that it's offered to them and to all to be received freely by faith. Now, whereas faith is the result of God's gracious work in regenerating us, giving us new hearts. Faith and salvation do not result from God's common grace. And we see that in the Noahic covenant here. In this covenant, God is not promising to save or redeem any in particular. Rather, he's promising, one, to withhold judgment, and two, to sustain the created order until the last day or the day of Christ's return. And imagine for a moment why such a covenant and promise was needed, especially for Noah and his family, who probably, without such a promise, would maybe be a bit wary um, if they saw an approaching thunderstorm or rain starting to fall. Um, As we've said, mankind was just as sinful Uh, and worthy of another flood, even a daily flood, due to our wickedness. And so a promise from God was surely needed to keep Noah and others from dread and worry. We see this first in 821, where the Lord says in his heart that he will never again curse the ground because of man. Neither will he ever again strike down every living creature as he had done, As long as the earth remains, God's promise that seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Again, the 104th Psalm just mentioned tells us that God has made made the moon to mark 
the seasons and the sun knows its time for setting. The prophet Amos declares that he who made the Pleiades in the Orion, all the galaxies and stars, and turns deep darkness into bright morning and darkens the day into night. The Lord is his name. God has so fixed the order of nature that nothing but his intervention at the end of time will hinder it. Day and night come and we think nothing of it. Seasons come and go each year. The weather changes daily, but not so that day, night, or seasons are halted or reordered. God is sovereign over his creation. The very hands that were once nailed to a Roman cross uphold the universe at this very moment. All the planets within the billions of galaxies are kept in their perfect orbit, established by God at creation, and every leaf falls and flower buds at their appointed time. There is nothing that he doesn't control perfectly. And in all of these things, we as sinners, recipients of grace, can rightfully exclaim with David, crying out to the Lord, What is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for him. Similarly, we read in chapter 9, verse 11, that God will never again destroy the earth with a flood. But that is not to say that the earth cannot be destroyed another way. Though day and night and seasons are fixed by God's command, the key words in these verses are, as the earth remains. Meaning there will come a day when the present things pass away, when all creation will be purified by fire rather than destroyed by flood. The Apostle Peter writes that when the Lord Jesus returns, having gathered every last sheep into his fold, there will be an end to day and night, summer and winter, and all things will be burned up and dissolved, and all the works on earth will be exposed to God's judgment. Peter continues saying, knowing this will surely happen, as sure as God warned of the coming flood and it eventually came to pass, we as God's people ought to be encouraged and motivated to live in holiness and godliness, not to appease God so that he spares us, but because he has already saved us and made us his very own children through the gospel. And we, and we should be waiting eagerly, the, the key word being eagerly, uh, because we have nothing to fear or dread if we are in Christ. Whether he returns this afternoon or in a thousand years, our standing before him is secure. We are his and he is ours for the rest of eternity. But until that day, this covenant, this Noahic covenant, ensures God's patience and long-suffering with a world that is full of ungodliness and ingratitude. In this text, we see several benefits of God's promise to sustain all things by his grace and ensure that the wickedness of man is restrained and the common good advanced. So our second point this morning, we'll look at uh, the benefits we see in this text of God's common grace covenant. As we already said, this covenant is something we 
benefit from every day of our lives, not just in how God sustains and holds nature in check, but also how he governs the world through various means and methods, ordaining good things for man's benefit and establishing obligations that further display the value that God has set upon those who bear his image. Firstly, we read in verse 1 of chapter 9 that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We read through this, or we read through this briefly last week um, and, and talked about how God intended his creation to be teeming with life, for he is the giver and sustainer of all that lives. This was the same command that God gave to Adam and Eve at the beginning of creation. And so this command assumes that marriage between a man and a woman, as with Adam and Eve, is the medium through which God intends for such fruitfulness to occur. That being said, it's clear that such a command is also a blessing or an assurance of God's goodwill towards man and his divine approval. That being the case, There's no biblical basis whatsoever for concluding that human population ought to be controlled or hindered for fear of the earth not being able to sustain such a vast number of creatures. The popular opinion today is that humans are procreating too much and that will overpopulate the earth. The less kids, the better seems to be the motto and the prevailing opinion of the culture. There's more concern today for trees and other lifeless objects that sprout from the ground than there are for those made in the very image of God. And really all there is to say to squash such a fear is to ask, would God prescribe such a thing if he were not perfectly capable of providing sustenance for all creatures? I think it's safe to assume that God knows what he's doing, and he pronounces such a blessing in his common grace to all mankind without distinction of whether they are his children or not to be carried out in the family structure that he has graciously ordained for the good of man. Next in this text, we come to the second common grace benefit that we see, where we read that all animals in creation are under the dominion of man. God, in his grace, puts the fear of man into animals so as to keep them in check, which acts like an invisible bridle. And so man is capable of subduing creatures for his benefit and ultimately for God's glory. Such stewardship, unfortunately, is marred by man's sinfulness And so he abuses that dominion often uh, and therefore dishonors the Lord. But the principle is that those made in the image of God have, by God's common grace, the privilege of having all plants and animals for food. All image bearers are capable and permitted by God in his grace to eat and enjoy what is eaten. It is not as if God has commanded man to eat the most bland Uh, plain foods and drinks just in order to survive, but out of his goodness and grace, he gives man taste buds which allow us to enjoy the food and drink that sustain us. Yet through all, without distinction, though with 
though all without distinction have this privilege, it is only the people of God who have new hearts by his spirit who are capable of enjoying such things with thankfulness and gratitude, sanctifying them through the word and prayer, as Paul tells Timothy. It is those who have become recipients of God's special or saving grace in the gospel who are best prepared and fit for glorifying him with thanksgiving in the use of his common grace gifts. Now, the only prohibition we read of here in this text is that man must not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Meaning, do not eat anything while it is alive. For to do so would be nasty, it would be savage, uh, it would be against the responsibility of man to be self-controlled and restrained in the privileges that God gives to him. This is a verse uh, I'm, I'm sure Pastor John reads to the waiter or waitress who asks him uh, how he'd like his steak cooked, because everyone knows Pastor John likes, likes his well done. Some people like Quran, he's not here, so I can pick on him like there's, like there's mooing, if you will. So he might want to be a little... A little careful with this, with this verse here, but that's not exactly what this verse is referring to at all. Um, but what it does is it sets the stage for the next couple of verses we see. Uh, what we see in these next couple of verses, the importance from lesser to greater and how highly God esteems life in general, but especially life in his image bearers. We read, and for your lifeblood, life I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God is righteous and just. And since he is the giver of life and rightfully hates murder and evil... And so here we see God instituting the punishment for those who wickedly and unjustly take the life of another image bearer. And that punishment is that they shall pay for it with their own life. This death penalty is actually a benefit of God's common grace, since what it does is it curbs sin and restrains evil and so ensures mankind's continued fruitfulness. The very fact that it's necessary is a testament to man's depravity and sinfulness. That without God's gracious restraining ordinances, mankind would devour themselves until man was no more on the earth. This principle then becomes the foundation for the civil authorities and earthly governments that God ordains, who are called to uphold righteousness and restrain or punish evil, and those who perpetuate it. Although no government in this world is perfect, since every government is full of sinners, even still they are ordained by God who sets them up and tears them down as he pleases, and how governments carry out their responsibilities, whether for good or for evil, will surely be dealt with by God himself. Now these few things that we just mentioned uh, such as procreation and man's dominion over 
animals for work and food and the God-ordained punishment for murder are but a few benefits of common grace, uh, but certainly significant ones that all of mankind benefits from every day. For those who are not in Christ, their benefit is merely temporal and only serves to condemn them even more as they abuse God's grace apart from faith and without thanking him for the gifts he gives to the undeserving. As God's grace is continually abused, according to his wisdom and purpose, he sees fit to remove that grace which restrains mankind's sinfulness and wickedness, and he gives them over to their own sin and lust. A worse judgment one can hardly imagine. On the other hand, those who are children of God, redeemed by his saving grace and brought into his kingdom, should of all people be most grieved for our daily abuse of God's grace for our ingratitude and misuse of his gifts, even making idols of these things that he gives to us to use and enjoy. Often our eyes and hearts are drawn to God's gifts rather than God himself. We put them on pedestals in our hearts and grieve the very thought of not having them, whether it be a thing or a person And so we should repent of our sin and come to our Father's throne of grace for forgiveness and ask him for the grace and help by his Spirit to steward his gifts properly and honorably, resting in him alone for comfort and joy. Secondly, as God's children, we should be the most grateful people in the world, having not only benefited from God's common grace to all, but also having received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we have every reason for contentment, for in him we have all that we truly need. We have the enjoyment of a good food and a pet dog, as annoying as they are, and sunshine and civil government and so much more, but even more so, we have God, as our attentive and caring Father. We have the risen Christ as our loving and faithful mediator and King. We have the Holy Spirit as our helper and comforter. What more could we possibly need? Thirdly, since God is so generous to even his enemies, how could we possibly be stingy or greedy or withhold generosity towards others when we have received so much from him? How could we be impatient or harsh with others who wrong us, whether they be our own spouse or child or parent or church family member, when God patiently bears not just with the ingratitude of sinful man, but also bears with the weaknesses and countless failures of his children? Let us then examine these things in our hearts when we consider God's grace to mankind. Now, our last point this morning I've titled God Remembers as we look at uh, the sign of the covenant that God makes with Noah and creation. We read, uh, beginning in verse 12, 
God saying, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. One of the things we noted this morning uh, in passing was imagining what Noah and his family would have been thinking uh, when they perhaps experienced uh, the next rainstorm after the flood, exiting the ark, um, not knowing what to expect, really. Had God not promised to never again bring a flood to destroy all living things, uh, anyone, even Noah, would maybe wonder, well, if God did it once already, who's to say he won't do it again? We're just as messed up as we were before. But God is gracious, as we see, yet again, and doesn't withhold this information from them, leaving them to anxiously wonder. But he clearly proclaims his promise as he always does. He always delivers his word so that it, that it is crystal clear. Now, as if a promise coming directly from God himself wasn't enough, he gives to them and all future generations of mankind afterward a sign. Specifically, the bow he sets in the clouds, or what we more commonly call a rainbow. And we see this throughout Scripture, that God not only makes covenants and promises with man, but he gives man a visible or tangible sign that is attached to God's word and thereby serves to strengthen our faith, which is so prone to weakness and is so often mixed with doubt. Now, when we talk about a sign in these instances, we aren't talking about a miraculous sign, uh, similar to what some who followed Jesus around demanded from him constantly to show us a sign. Um, Such people are alive and well today, even in the church, who seek signs and wonders, yet at the very same time neglect the ordinary signs or signposts that God has ordained and fixed to his promises. In this case, God takes something he has already created, the rainbow, and attaches or engraves his promise to it. And so the rainbow signifies God's mercy and long-suffering and promising to sustain creation and withhold final judgment. It isn't that God's word was insufficient, but it's actually just that as sinful creatures we're pretty ignorant and actually pretty dumb when it comes to God's promises or commands in Scripture. And so God, knowing our weakness and susceptibility to forget, in his kindness meets our needs by giving us the sign. Interestingly, um, though I've been referring to what the sign is intended for from our creaturely perspective This text actually focuses not primarily on what man is to think or remember when he sees the rainbow in the clouds, 
but what God remembers. God says in verse 16 that when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember. Now, does God need reminders? Do certain things just slip his mind from time to time? And in this case, he sees the rainbow in the clouds and goes, oh, that's, that's right. That covenant I made with, with Noah and the rest of creation. It's a good thing I remember because I was about to destroy the earth with another flood. Of course, that can't be true. This is God we're talking about. And so when we see something like this in Scripture, we can note first what it cannot possibly mean, given what we know of God's revealed attributes and character. Additionally, we should be reminded of what we saw last week when we talked about God smelling Noah's offering on the altar. And that such language is not literal, but is a form of speech that ascribes human characteristics to God in order to convey to our finite minds what God is doing and what the spiritual significance of it is. In this case, God remembers his covenant when he sees the bow in the clouds. And that conveys to us simply that God is faithful and worthy of our trust. He does not covenant with people and then forget about them, nor does he take his promises lightly. But when Noah heard that God would remember the covenant when he saw the sight of the sign in in the clouds, and when we read that as well, we can be sure that it is not displayed in the sky by random chance, but that our gracious Lord put it there for a reason. And he takes notice of it. And he takes notice of us who are unworthy of his grace. Us who are recipients of his patience and mercy every day. Sadly and ironically, the very sign that should remind sinners of God's grace and long-suffering is often merely seen as a scientific phenomenon. Or worse, is used to flaunt mankind's prideful rebellion against their creator and his holy commands. The very sign that testifies to God's mercy and patience, as we all know, is abused and misrepresented in our culture. And at the very same time, God is patient and merciful towards such sinners and all sinners in general who God has every right to crush under his wrath. And judgment. So that being said, we shouldn't expect much from a lost world when they look upon the sign of the Noahic covenant simply because they're, of course, dead in sin as we once were and have no spiritual eyes to see and understand our gracious God who has covenanted with all creatures. But that doesn't mean we who have received his saving grace. In Christ, through the gospel, cannot proclaim the truth of this covenant sign and what it truly represents and what our faithful God remembers when the bow is shining beautifully in the sky. We need not over-spiritualize it either, but we can proclaim God's mercy and patience displayed in this covenant of common grace. But let us also proclaim God's love and mercy towards sinners displayed in the life, death, and resurrection 
of our Lord Jesus. For apart from him, apart from the gospel, there is no good news for sinners. They may spend their entire life in this world profiting from God's common grace, and when it comes time to stand before the Lord, their refusal to repent and believe in him despite so much evidence of his grace will only heap further condemnation upon them. Apart from repentance and faith in Christ, the Son of God, there is no true enjoyment of any common grace benefit in this world. For those of us in Christ, we who have come to him for salvation and received him by grace through faith, may we glorify God in our enjoyment and stewardship of his good gifts, even common gifts in this world. We can marvel that despite our sin, we get to enjoy family, we get to enjoy friends and good food and drink and laughter and sunrises and all the other simple and ordinary but amazing things we get to do and behold daily. And when the Lord in his love and wisdom sees fit to take them from us. As hard as that may be, may we humbly come and praise him who remains our portion in times of plenty and in times of want. For his people, God's people, his children, these blessings are but a shadow and a foretaste of what we will one day enjoy in glory. But until then, praise and thank God for them and marvel that he sets his love upon us particularly in his son who is the fountain of all grace and blessedness which lasts beyond this fleeting world and into eternity let's pray heavenly father we're thankful for your word we're thankful for your covenants and covenant promises which are clear as day And by your spirit, you have graciously allowed us to understand and rejoice in. We're thankful, Lord, for your word and how it sanctifies us by your spirit, convicts us of sin and encourages us in the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for your common grace towards all mankind, your grace which causes us to benefit from countless gifts that we do not deserve. We're thankful, Lord, for your patience and long-suffering. And we ask, Lord, that your kindness to us and to all would lead us to repentance of our sin, of our ingratitude, and that we would come to you for forgiveness through Christ and know that in him we are safe and secure from the judgment to come. Lord, we're so thankful for your saving grace. Lord Jesus, we're thankful Uh, that you perfectly obeyed the Father in everything, that you were always perfectly grateful and thankful on our behalf. We're thankful that your perfection is credited to us by faith and that our sin was heaped upon you at the cross. We pray, Lord, that in light of your saving grace to us in the gospel, you would fill our hearts with gratitude and motivate us to live lives of joyful obedience to your commands until the day we are rid of sin and can enjoy you face to face. In your name we pray 
all of these things, Lord Jesus. Amen.